everybody. Welcome back, riders. We have an exciting and star-studded episode of The Reserve Tank presented by Progressive to share with you all today. We are focusing this episode on what it takes to get into road racing. And our guests are Moto America racer Kyle Wyman and Pikes Peak champion Rennie Skaysbrook. How are you guys doing today? Let's talk about racing, gents. Hi, guys. How you doing? <laughs> So you both began racing early on. This isn't something you came into in the middle of your life. So that has its advantages, right, in some way. Um, doing it early, I'm assuming, has, like, some benefit for, you know, your families to kind of get you into it, and then you kind of have that little bit of support. Um, what if somebody in their mid-20s uh, or early 40s uh, wants to get into racing? What's the first step they should take to get going? Uh, let's start with Kyle. Well, I think, uh, you know, it's more accessible than it's ever been these days. You know, the motorcycle industry has worked hard to, to come out with products that, you know, are easier for people to get into it. You know, you talk about the Ovales, the, the mini bikes that you can go ride on, on cart tracks to, you know, the, the lightweight bikes like the R3s and Ninja 400s and KTM RC390s accessible motorcycles that that people are racing all over the country now you know just getting into it i think is is more accessible than it's ever been and what do you think rennie yeah i mean for sure kyle's pretty spot on that um i mean i started racing when i was a kid but i've come in and out of racing um you know i mean i've had very much a start and stop sort of racing life and uh the when i the uh, one of the times a few years ago, I was doing, I was basically starting all over again by myself, and so um, I know exactly the the feeling. But you know, we we're very lucky in Australia. We had one make series, um, which were for FZ six, that was FZ six in, in America uh, races, which they were really easy to get involved with. You know, control spec tires, control spec bikes, all that kind of stuff. So that was that was super easy. But I mean, more to Kyle's point of view, like there are there are a pretty large number of bikes now that don't cost a lot, um, that aren't that expensive to repair, and you can have a hell of a lot of fun doing it. Um, you know, tires are relatively expensive in any form of racing, but especially road racing. But um, there are, there are levels of tires that you can get that you don't have to go to the full on crazy slip tires immediately if you're just trying to find your feet and and plus there is the traditional route, which pretty much everybody should do, in my opinion, is to get proficient at track days um, so that you can get, take your street bike out, dip your toe in the water a bit, figure out if you like it or not, and then uh, and kind of go from there. And there's huge organizations across the country. Uh, I mean, the club racing thing in America is really, really strong. Um, you know, coming from Australia, it's it's a little bit segregated in a way, and like, not segregated is not the right word, but like, yeah, it's separate in a way. It's not quite as strong as what we have out here. Um, you know, clubs like in California, like CVMA, Chuckwall Valley, and then you've got AFM up upper Northern California and huge organizations that cater for guys of Kyle's level down to my level down to, you know, guys that are just starting out. So it's, yeah, it's never really been easy to get involved. So that's a, that's a great point when you talk about like going to a track day and taking your street bike. So let's like, Let's go into like how I've been doing it for like the last year. Like I've gone to track days like five or six times in the last eight months, really kind of putting in the time and the work, right? What would be my next step if I wanted to like start being competitive? You know, I've done Yamaha Champions Racing School. I've done 
my own personal track days. I've done various track days. What would be that next step? Uh, Kyle. I think the next step is, is, you know, getting with those club racing organizations and even the track day organizations, a lot of them have the mock races. You know, I think it's, you know, the coaching doesn't stop once you've been to your school and you've gotten the information. You know, I work for Yamaha school and uh, we'll have four or five time, you know, graduates that will come through multiple times. And then I'll do private one-on-one coaching. I'll do online coaching with people and just help them get a path. And a lot of the coaching I do online is not even so much about the riding technique as it is just the operation side of going racing and what it takes. Like, what do you need? What should you plan for? You know, and those things are like, you know, you got to have stands. You got to have a friend there that you can count on to, you know, take care of you if you crash the thing or if something bad happens that is part of racing, you know. Um, like the next steps are always just, just going out and doing it and getting the experience and learning from people. But, you know, the biggest piece of advice in that process that I can really come up with is to, to find qualified support, qualified help. You know, it's not a majority rule sport. You can't just go pit to pit at the track and just, you know, ask everybody what they do and then just do what most people do. You know, there's there's people that have been doing it for a living for a long time. And um, there's definitely accelerated processes to getting better in this sport that can help you save that time and money and and heartache and sometimes the pain of crashing if if uh, you get that right guidance. So that sounds like a really great point, which is, you know, there there are so many resources out there. Ask questions, right? I'd say like go up to people, maybe go to a track, maybe go to a track day, go to a track day organizer, maybe even go to a race event and after the races, of course, because guys are preparing for their races. But ask those questions. Ask, you know, what resources can be achieved if this is something you're interested in is getting into racing. Do you guys know a little bit or enough about like the licensing requirements? Because I've heard that, you know, in order to like race CVMA or or AFM, you have to get a race license. Uh, What is that? Do you know what that process looks like or how that goes? Um, Rennie said yes quickly. So, Rennie, field it. Yeah. Well, CVMA is my club. Those are the guys that I've been racing with now for a number of years. Uh, you get a, as far as I'm aware, um, you get an AMA license uh, where you become a member of the AMA. Um, but I was actually originally doing my stuff through Wera. Um, so I would get my wear, get my AMA membership, and then I'd get my wear club license, and that would allow me to ride at AFM. I could ride at CVMA. Um, I actually let my wear license lapse at um, earlier this year and just rejoined at CVMA because that was where I was doing all my stuff. But if you're a first-time racer, you do the thing on the Friday of the race meeting, which is the new racer school, effectively, and they're all riding around in fluoro yellow vest, you're like a road worker for a race. And uh, they'll, you'll get in a six lap race. And the rule is basically if you finish, you get your license. Um, it's it's pretty pretty easy to say, like um, just to be able to get yourself on the grid. Um, then you obviously have to deal with all the stuff that Kyle was talking about. If, you know, there is a bit of investment that's involved. Um, but yeah, getting the license itself isn't terribly difficult, at least from my sort of memory of it as least as well. Plus, I'd sort of come into it from a little bit of a different level, like a, a side, like I was a 
I guess, an A-grade rider. They call it A-grade expert rider in, in Australia. Um, but when I had moved over here, I, was, I hadn't raced for a couple of years. So I kind of started at the bottom, I guess, in a way, and just kind of really got myself back up to the, the right level. But, um, I mean, I'm not too sure about the... Um, to get the to get the AMA Pro Racing license that Kyle's got, um, I know that there are a bunch of like you got to basically get credits within your individual club. But here's where it gets a bit disjointed because some of the clubs are not recognised by the AMA. Um, you know, I've heard some pretty horror stories of guys that are you know pretty devastatingly quick in places like the AFM, which is a very good uh, club, a very competitive club. Uh, and haven't had, haven't had issues trying to get their licenses. So, I mean, maybe Kyle can highlight more and speak to more about that than I can. But, um, yeah, it, it's it's not as fluid a system as what I think it should be. Um, riding just at a club level, fair enough. We want to get on the board to go to go nationals. I think there's a few sort of missteps you need to avoid. What would those be, Kyle? Yeah, I mean, it's been a long time. Um, I think I my first pro race was when I was 19 in road racing. So I went through Weira as well. And all of the 2008 season, I was a novice at first. And um, I came out of flat track, pro flat track for three years before I road raced. So I knew how to ride a motorcycle. I didn't know how to road race, but I, I was able to move through Weira pretty quickly. I think from about half, halfway through the season, I'm, I was bumped up from novice to expert. And then from that point, you start to accumulate points in the expert races at your club and and if it's recognized which most of them are obviously you know we've heard just now that there might be a few issues with some clubs but um there's a literal you know minimum points scoring requirement at your club that can qualify you for an ama license and um it's determined by that alone so you know you can go to a lot of races for three years and, and accumulate the number of points you need, or you can win a lot of club races in a short period of time and, and get the, the amount of points you need that way. But from there, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of riders goal is to race a Moto America race and qualify for the grid there. And, and that's the first step is getting enough points in club racing to, to qualify yourself for that. So that's a, that's very much once you've started establishing your career goals, I guess, as a, as a racer, let's talk briefly about, um, if you guys with all the experience that you both have, right. If you could in hindsight, look back and think about what the most budget friendly, easiest way to get into racing. Let's say you have, I'm going to say, if you're going to go buy a bike and then buy all the other stuff, let's, let's take the, the price of the motorcycle out of the, actually, let's keep that in there. You got 15 grand. That makes probably most sense, right? Cause there's a bunch of stuff that you're going to need. If you can keep it under that, right? What would be the first step for anybody? Just got your M1 license. You've been riding around for a couple years. Um, you've maybe done one or two track days. Maybe you haven't even done a track day. What would be the first start? What, what, like what bike would you really recommend? Um, like what DOT tires would you recommend? What like basic pit necessities you would need just to start your process outside of racing, more like getting into track days, what that might look like. Um, I mean, Kyle. Yeah, lightweight bike, 300s, 400s on like a Q3 plus or Q4 tire that doesn't need tire warmers. 
and that's from Dunlop. Um, you know, body work and call it call it a day. Go ride the thing. You know, put a pipe on it so you eliminate the catalytic converter. You know, from there, just ride the crap out of it. You know. Um, and why would you why would you recommend a small bike like that? It's economical. You know, you don't have to sink a whole bunch of engine work in it to be competitive. There's always going to be a class for you to race an AFM. We're a CCS and people who are going to be that little bit quicker than you to pull you along and give you those lessons along the way. So um, these bikes did not exist when I got into road racing. That yeah. was it. There was you had to get on a 600 back in the in the 2000, late 2000s. These bikes weren't out yet. It's almost it's such a normal thing now to see all of these smaller displacement motorcycles, but they didn't exist, you know, even 10 years ago. So it's such a good way for people to get into racing. And, you know, if you're if you're coming out of college and you want to look into it like the Junior Cup in Moto America, the age limit's 28. So, yeah, 15 year olds can race it, but the age limit's 28. So you can go Moto America racing, you know. And getting into it in your mid twenties, and I think that was a big deal. I think the original class, uh, the age limit was twenty two, and um, there was a number of people, including myself, who pushed for it to be higher because there is a large contingent of of younger riders that didn't come up through racing when they were five years old, like myself, and and it sounds like Rennie as well, who you know built those skills over so many decades just to to have that already in their back pocket there's guys that i mentor that are just getting into it out of school and like they didn't have their parents giving them a mini bike when they were four years old they just they really love the sport and they want to get into it and as soon as you start club racing on a small bike and you start to get fast you're going to start hearing all these voices saying oh you need to be on a 600 oh you need to get slick so you need to do this you need to do that it all just takes money my brother Cody, he's 27 years old, and he races full time in the Moto America Junior Cup Championship. You know, I mean, I love it because you know it's economical. He can afford to do it, and that's where he's at right now. Like if that class didn't exist, he just wouldn't be racing. So, I think it's just it's so, you know, that there's always going to be these like pressures of like, oh, well, you know, you're old enough to be on a superbike, or, you know, for me, like when I look back. And I raced in the XR 1200 series. It was a spec class. It was Harley Davidson's, but it was economical. And I couldn't have, you know, I couldn't have continued racing at that time if that class didn't exist. It costs that, you know, that little amount of money, relatively speaking, to like racing super sport or super bike. And when I look back, I wish I stayed on that bike longer because I could have won more and I just, kind of caved to the pressure of you know i should be on a 600 because there's guys that are younger than me that are you know winning 600 championships and they're going to get factory rides on super bikes and you know i i jumped out of that class prematurely you know there's just so much to be said for getting that experience and, and racing where you are and you know being in it for the long haul Rennie, you got anything on that yeah i mean look Carl's definitely right. The the smaller bikes are incredibly underrated. I mean, I've ridden out here, I've raced Ninja 400s, I've raced RC 390s. Um, and 
I'd say every time we go to a press day and we're on R3s or Ninja 400s, it's game on. Like, it is so much fun. Um, you know, it's, it's, like, it's like go-kart racing. So it's like, you know, it, it's, it's great fun. I mean, the only thing that I would put in on that is it's like you've got to look at also your physical size. Like, if you're a really tall bloke like you, you know, you're not a sand boy, you're, you're a bloody giant. You know, it might be a bit hard to squeeze that frame onto a Ninja 400. But having said that, there are bikes like Twins Cup bikes and things like that, which aren't don't murder tires quite to the level the 600 or 1,000 does. And, um, yeah, there are so many different bikes, uh, different avenues to be able to get involved in. I mean, when you say you got 15 grand, like, you'll go through 15 grand pretty quickly to get the whole setup. You know, like, at least just enough that you can – do it comfortably. Like, I mean, I mean, whether you, whether you have a van or not, um, I mean, that's the, the number one thing a racer needs is either a van or a truck. And, um, and yeah, obviously you got stands, tire warmers, all that other stuff, canopies, because a lot of pits out here, a lot of pits in America don't have proper pitting complexes. And um, I know Chuck Wally were in the middle of the desert. If you didn't have a canopy, you'd die of entire pit exhaustion. So, um, yeah, just like all these little things that you want to be able to do it when you're there and do it at a relatively comfortable level. Like you don't want to feel like you're scratching it just to be able to go out and ride because that'll take a bit of the fun out of it. So, you know, things like, but yeah, going back to the bikes, like for sure Ninja 400s are probably the most economical and they're robust as hell, those things. Like I've seen dudes destroy those bikes and they keep coming back for more. Like it's those things that's you got to factor, factor that into equations as well because when you start blowing up super bikes and 600s man it gets expensive real quick yeah i'm just thinking about like like it it uh it inspires me to go get like a ninja like a ninja 400 or a little yamaha r3 um, but it always comes back to that conversation that we had running a while ago where i'm on my street triple and i look like a giant and it's like <laughs> like buy rear sets man you'll be better off you'll be more comfortable you need a bigger yeah. bike dude and it's like uh i can't afford it i don't want it i need to i need to cut my legs off a little bit <laughs> um, it's that never-ending problem <laughs> so I got, I got a question for both of you so like outside of like the motorcycle stuff right like just buying the bike getting the gear what's something that you each absolutely have to have in the pits that make you like there's there's being on the track, but like having something in the pits that makes you feel very comfortable, that gives you that recharge time between sessions, that you just can't live without. Rennie. Bottles of water, lots of bottles of water. <laughs> I mean, I I got and I'm gonna be honest about this because like I didn't take this stuff like real hydration. Uh, I didn't start to take it really seriously until I was racing at Pikes Peak. And then, and the reason I'd say Pikes Peak is because that wasn't actually through the exer the exertion; it was the altitude sickness. So, like you know, we start at nine thousand feet and finish at fourteen, and then on the the second practice stage, we were always starting our run from the last third of the course. We were sitting at twelve thousand feet, and we were there for like six, seven hours, kind of thing. So your body's not accustomed to it. You need hydration, and I would do a run where I would just do Five minute run, come back down, bottle of water. Five minute run, bottle of water. And eventually get into the cycle of like, go and have a leak, bottle of water, run. Go and have a leak, bottle of water, run. And you, 
you, but the the clarity that it gives you, um, and the the lack of um, you know, issues with your muscles as well um, is a really big thing. And like I just kind of wigged it for so many years and never really worried about it. Had a, had the odd bottle of water, water here and there, but now like when I turn up to the track, I've got like two thirty blocks of water, and if it's on, if it's over the course of three days, they're gone. Um, and just I know, just smash them, and I feel so much better as a result. And and as a result, also you're uh, the next day, the Monday and Tuesday, you're not quite as sore as well. Kyle, yeah, hydration's big. I uh, I'm like not even sponsored, but I I use essential water and uh, liquid IV. So um, the hydration, not only just the water, but the you know the electrolytes, keeping those going, but um, for me, like the biggest thing for like between sessions is just, you know, being able to stay organized because, you know, how you ride the motorcycle starts well before you get on the motorcycle. You know, it starts well before you swing your leg over it. And if you're tripping over your electrical cords and, you know, and then can't find your left glove and then you put your shield down and realize it still has bugs on it because you forgot to clean it, like you're not going to win the race. And that's, that's kind of, you know, something that I put a lot of focus on is just the preparation, not even just before I get to the racetrack, but, you know, between sessions and just, just putting so much focus on what's going on off the bike so that, you know, when I get on the bike, that, that tone is set, you know, I'm already focused. I'm already in that moment. So I think there's just a lot to be said for the mental state and, you know, putting that focus in those areas, you know? You know, not even, not even, not even, not, I'm not even close to being a motorcycle road racer, but I found that as I, from session to session on my track days, my, my tent would start to get more and more disorganized. And I'd be like, you know, and I also carry like my, my production equipment. I'm just like, where's that GoPro? Where's that extra battery? And like, everything's just like laying around. Um, I think that takes time. You know, you start to recognize what's going wrong and what's not happening. And, um, yeah, Rennie, dude, uh, big, big hint off of what Kyle said, electrolyte tabs, my friend. I was passing yeah, yeah. those things out we'll like, see. I was passing those things out like Skittles at the Moto, Moto Club track day. Ask Shalina. She's like, she's like, I'm just dropping them out. People are like, oh my God, you know, thank you so much. And I'm like, keep going. It's a hundred degrees. <laughs> so, um, let's, uh, let's, let's bust some quick myths. What are some big myths? Uh, that we should break down for people that just they have to be debunked about racing like hard facts um this is kind of a reality um of of the sport of of even club racing up to the pro level uh rennie go first uh that racing is more dangerous than street riding uh it's most certainly not <laughs> um when you when you look at the odds uh you are racing with a bunch of like-minded people yes there are a few maniacs out there as there are anywhere but you know you put the helmet on and you go ripping down the 405 you you're you're in the same boat with a bunch of guys that don't ride motorcycles so um you know racing i find you sort of put yourself into an area where everyone has the same goal uh and yeah you you'll the it, the thing with the racing too is like it separates pretty quickly like the quick guys will be quick straight away and then there's the and then it filters all the way back down and so you can learn a lot of skills but at the same time like yeah you will I, at least in my opinion you will for sure be safer 
uh, yeah, you'll definitely be safer going fast at a track, at a racetrack than you will be on the road. I can't wait to let my wife listen to exactly that blurb you just said, because I've been trying to explain this to her and she adores you. So um, it, this is going to work out well for me. Uh, Kyle, what's another myth we can debunk about racing or let, um, let listeners know? I could go on for this on this one for a long time, but I'll, I'll talk just specifically more on the riding side, like, you know, that you have to like, you know, it's more gas, less brakes to go faster. You know, it's like, you know, that, you know, speed equals risk. You know, if you want to go faster, you got to take more risk. Those are completely backwards. You know, it, it turns out that the things that make you faster are also the things that make you safer. And there's, you know, I'm, I'm a risk averse individual. You know, I, I take a lot of risk in business and in racing, but, you know, only because I trust myself to, uh, you know, to, to not give up and make it happen, you know, type of thing. So I think, you know, the other one would be, you know, in order to make a million dollars in racing, you got to start with two, you know, <laughs> and, uh, that's not true at all. Um, you know, I make a living racing and started with nothing. So I think, uh, you know, if you really want to chase this and, and, uh, you really want to go for it, that anybody who's, who's on the fence of whether they want to jump in and try to race and do it competitively and try to make a, a living out of it, that it's, it's possible if you want to put in the work. So. All right, good. You guys are both, um, very qualified riders, but it's not, you're not just, um, you're not just sequestered to road riding, right? Cause Kyle, you said earlier that you came from flat track and Rennie, I know you shred off road. What's the importance of cross training, uh, in relation to like road racing, being able to ride dirt bikes or flat track or anything. Um, what's, why should, why should people consider all types of riding? Uh, Kyle. Well, I mean, it's, um, you know, my flat track background prepared me for road racing better than I ever could have known, you know, so being able to, you know, play with the edge of grip where it's hard to feel that in road racing and you're punished so hard when you cross that line of grip, um, in flat track, especially on little bikes on, you know, TTRs and, you know, little Hondas and any dirt bikes, you know, you can cross the edge of grip and not pay the huge price. So cross training, first of all, it's cheap fun, you know, to, to go ride dirt bikes compared to getting ready for a track day and, you know, trailering your bike there and everything. And, you know, it's, um, it's a great way to train. You know, I ride motocross and flat track, you know, when I can't get to a road course or, or also like the minis, we talked about ovales and mini bikes on the, on the go-kart tracks, that whole scene is blowing up so big that, um, you know, it's just, it's another way to train in road racing without paying the huge price of getting there or paying the huge price of tipping over. You can low side on a mini bike and pick it up and keep going. If you track, you know, if you low side your R6 and turn three at VIR, you're going home, you know? So it's, uh, it's important to, you know, keep it economical to get better as a motorcycle rider and also just to have even more fun. Rennie. Um, yeah, I mean, totally echo Kyle's statements on that because it's like anything, you know, like you don't want to be good at just one thing in life. Like you want to be proficient at multiple things. Um, so 
motorcycle riding is it's a bit like speaking different languages in a way like they all have the same kind of there's the same meaning behind them but they go about them differently and you can go and do things like trials riding trials riding is what made kevin schwanz great you know like and it's the if you if you were to look at Charles riding and a 500 cc on pre-bike like they're about as complete opposite as you can get but the the skills learned in trials riding crossover into road racing same with like i mean i remember um going the other way one of the kids that i raced with in australia rowan tungate was a very good 600 rider and he went not the hell with this i'm going speedway and so he went off and now he's a pro speedway racer over in i think denmark sweden and uh poland i think uh, rides for the teams over there and so there's that's one of the good things about riding is that like yeah they're all different but they've all got two wheels and a handlebar and the base um the base skills that you learn cross over into so many different areas uh, of riding and, and and just also for the social side too like you go out with your buddies like i did a ride with um chris Fillmore and Adam Wahed and a few guys, it was like it was more, a few, it was about 40 of us up in uh, Ridgecrest last year. And I mean, it was just so much fun. Like we would just go on dirt bikes and just ripped into the desert and just had a blast and, you know, drank a bazillion beers that night and had a really good time. And, you know, the, the social side of things over there is, is what kind of brings it all in in the first place because you, there is a big community feel with racing and riding, doesn't matter what it is, you know, like, go to Sturgis so you can go to Daytona. Like, so we're all part of the same kind of crew. So to be able to get, gain benefit from doing different forms of the sport keeps it interesting as well and you know, only, only creates more base skill for you to use elsewhere. Awesome. Let's move on to our listener questions. Some of these are, are, are kind of funny and some of them are actually pretty insightful, thoughtful. Um, I got one from Jeff May 99. Should they invest in Dogecoin or racing? Dogecoin. Dogecoin. I doubled my money. <laughs> I'm Long term invest. Yeah. What's that? I put in money on that and I doubled it and then pulled it out. And I looked at it the other day. I'm like, damn it. Yeah. <laughs> on that. yeah. All right, y'all. There yeah. you go. Crypto versus uh, actual <laughs> racing. You'll actually be able to fund your racing through crypto, long-term versus short-term, y'all. Yeah. Although buying, the, buying those rear sets was... Both very volatile. <laughs> although buying those rear sets was very, very... Um, uh, it meant a lot <laughs> for my bike. Uh, so Herodotus45 asks, he's 43 years old, um, and he's been riding for years, uh, but he's never been on the track. And is it too late for this old dog to start riding or begin racing? Nope. Not at all. <laughs> nope, not at all. Short and quick. Uh, Kodad Alas is says he's a non-racer. And what are some tips you have for riding smarter and faster? Uh, Rennie, go first. Uh, I guess it depends on where you're riding. But um, the biggest thing that I found that improved my riding more than anything was um, your art was where I was looking. Um, it's that it's kind of like the thing where you, you don't look at your feet when you're walking, like you look further ahead. And Jason Pridmore was the one that was the, what really highlighted it to me when I did his school a number of years ago. And I mean, I was 
pretty proficient at that stage anyway, um, having come from Australia, but like he picked up things of just where my eyes were and they really help. And I use it all the time. Like every time I get on the bike now, whether I'm going down to the shops or I'm ripping a, a track day, like I'm more cognizant of where I'm looking, like looking through corners and anticipating things. So that it's especially important on the road because you're, you are dealing with more than just a track in front of you and a couple of guys that are going in the same direction, your pedestrians and cars and whatever else. So like you look where you look, I think is probably the most underrated thing of trying to be safe on a bike. And based on what Rennie just said too, if anybody's when you well, to any of our listeners, if you're in a position, stand up, stand on one foot, look down at your feet and try to balance. Now switch that vision to a point about 10 feet across the room, pick an object and notice how much more your balance is stronger or better, right? So like what Rennie's saying is by looking through that turn all the way, you're actually not only giving yourself more situational awareness, but you're giving yourself a little bit more balance. And that's really important on a bike. Uh, Kyle, what's uh, what's a tip for riding smarter and faster? I think it's, it's um, you know, riding a motorcycle well, in a nutshell is about controlling your speed, being able to control your speed because, you know, when we see people have issues on the street in corners, it's always because they were too fast for the corner, you know, and it's, it's, um, it's, it's always about controlling speed, being able to use your brakes proficiently. You know, there's a lot of, you know, initial riding schools to get your license and things that just don't teach people how to slow their motorcycle to adjust for these corners. You know, they kind of give them the basics and send them on their way. So, you know, it's pretty amazing how well these brakes work on these motorcycles these days and what technology is there to, to keep us from locking them as far as, you know, cornering ABS and things. And, you know, I just don't think that enough street riders specifically know how to use their front brakes as well as they can. And it, it goes the same for the track. You know, we want to be able to hit an apex and, and not run wide in a corner. It's the same thing, controlling our speed. Um, but it, it means so much more on the street when it's about keeping yourself on your own side of the center line. So, you know, I think that uh, managing and, and mastering the brakes is, is number one. Just want to add to that, like, like the best thing that you can do on none is do a ride of train. doesn't matter, like, doesn't matter what it is because you'll get so many ideas and if you never have any into any um intentions of going racing like you will for sure learn something you know you, whether it's being safer being faster being smoother using brakes better using gearbox better like whatever it is like do some rider training and invest in it because if you are going to go and do you want to you want to do this for a long time you know put a bit of coin down and you know be a student for a while and you, you, I've never met a rider that's never done a proper riding school that's walked out of it thinking it was a waste of money. Invest in yourself. That's, uh, that's what I tell a lot of new riders too. Just the best thing you can do is buy into you. Uh, my, my buddy Overkill Andy asks, uh, if anything, he'd love to get into supermoto. Is there a big race circuit out there for that or like good clubs for that? Rennie, yeah. I know you rip on a little husky. Or it's a big oh, risky, but it's the only bike I own at the moment. I love that bike. I paid for it with crypto. Funnily enough, <laughs> I paid it off with crypto, which is hilarious. True story. But um, 
yeah, oh, dude, I love Supermoto. I just freaking love it. Um, it it's like that, because like uh, I, I've, I've got the use of a long-term Ovale as well, and I love that thing as well, but it, you, know, you are pretty contorted on those things, even though it's a bigger one. And that's a brilliant bike as well. Like the, the Ovale thing is just so, so cool. But yeah, man, Supermoto is just great fun. You know, you can, and you don't have to go fast to have a really good time on Supermoto. And, um, and, the, and we're now back in a, would say it's definitely not the golden era. The golden era was about 15 years ago, but the, we're now at a point where factory built Supermoto bikes are coming back into force pretty hard now. Like, I mean, with KTM, uh, obviously owning Husqvarna and then you have the Husqvarna itself. I mean, I, I did that test on that Husqvarna back in 2018. I did three laps, um, at the press launch and I went right up to Andy Jefferson, Husky and went, you're not getting this bike back. And I put it in the, I put the press bike in my van that day and it hasn't left my, it hasn't left my body, my garage. <laughs> what bike, what bike is it? It's a 2019 FS 450 Um I mean, that's the thing too with that bike is that like, and, and the KTM, the SMR 450 is that like, it comes with such good gear that if you were to build that bike out of a motocross bike, you're going to spend way more than the purchase price of getting that thing up to that spec. And I mean, I have ridden the nuts off that thing for the last four years or three and a half years, change the oil, gets the valves done and throw tires at it and brake pads and that's it. And it's just so much fun to, I love it. And it's, and it teaches you all kinds of different tricks as well. Like it really teaches you how to slide a bike on the entry and you know, that, pro tip which i still can't do on a like like kyle can but like where you where you can kind of get the back end sliding to the point where you can bring the you can sort of shorten the corner a little bit I and mean, when you learn all that stuff in supermoto it's dirt track style so it's uh it's i would highly recommend anyone getting supermoto it's brilliant and but yeah to the to the to the um question like yeah there are some clubs out here there's the the war racing club um which Runs at Apex, this is Southern California, so runs at Apex, runs at Adams. There's also um, a club that runs up at Button Willow. Um, there's a big scene up in Thunder Hill area um, in Northern California. Uh, there's a couple of car tracks around there. Um, yeah, they run out of Grange out here as well. Um, it's definitely coming back, which is a, which is a good thing. Well, there it is. Kai, got anything to add to that one, or did you think Rennie hit it? Or yeah, he hit it. I, I haven't done a lot of supermoto. You know, I I done a couple like you know one-off races here and there, but it was ten years ago. You know, I know that it's um it's a great scene. It's it's economical. You know, in the way that you know the the lightweight stuff is. So and uh, you know it's dirt and asphalt in a lot of cases. So uh, it's, it's it's great. When I saw that question come about, I was like, oh, Rennie's going to shoot this one down. <laughs> yeah. All right, guys, let's uh, let's move on to the last portion of this podcast, which is a which is a personal favorite of mine. It's our this or that game show uh, kind of. So I'm going to ask you guys questions. Right. You have to pick one or the other. Right. They may be difficult. They may be easy. Uh, but the real thing is, is that your your clout and your expertise as motorcycle racers is going to be on the line here. People will judge you heavily for your answers. Uh, I will judge you very heavily for your answers and I won't let you off the hook. So let's get it into it. Uh, I'll call each of you out to do, I might go, you know, Rennie, Kyle, Kyle, Rennie, just pick your own and then you can kind of go off of it. So 
The first question is, what's the best safety innovation of the two? The new airbag suits that have been created or MIPS helmets? Rennie. Uh, very tough choice. Probably got to say the airbag suit, I think. Um, only just, but yeah, the airbag suit is is pretty remarkable. Um, they're, they're really cool innovation. So is MIPS too. Um, but mind you, I haven't crashed in a MIPS helmet yet. I've crashed in an airbag suit, so it's like yeah, I know which I know one works. <laughs> Kyle, airbag for sure with Tech Air and Alpine Stars, but uh, better yet, over MIPS is uh, ODS by 6D helmets because it's omnidirectional and it's actually working within 3D space instead of 2D. So. Um, that's my plug. <laughs> I was going to say, you learn something on the Reserve Tank podcast, and you also get a little bit of sponsorship plug. Yes. Uh, but no, 60 helmets are actually really awesome. I, I can attest to that as well. So, guys, you can, only one, you can only own one motorcycle, okay? Is it a leader bike with stock everything or a factory middleweight? Kyle. Harley-Davidson Road Glide. <laughs> Rennie. Factory middleweight. Any guy. Any guy. <laughs> which, do you guys prefer, which do you guys prefer? Morning sessions or afternoon sessions? Rennie. Morning sessions for sure. Morning. Yeah, it's like the mornings, man. I'm all about the afternoons when the, when the track is heated up and I've actually woken up. <laughs> <laughs> Single-sided swing arm or double-sided swing arm? Kyle. Single-sided, all day. Cody Corsa. <laughs> Rennie. Uh, probably got to go single just because they look damn sexy. They're also easier to switch out uh, components, right? All right, you can only have one on your on your on your track bike, right? A quick shifter or slipper clutch. Rennie. Slipper clutch. Kyle. I would pick a quick shifter. Oh, the master at work here. He's like, I can I'll manage those it. downshifts. I'll slip it myself. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Standard shift or GP shift? Kyle. GP shift. Rennie. GP. Yeah, you guys are badasses. <laughs> it confuses, confuses the hell out of me. All right. You got to pick one. You got to pick one for like track days, racing or whatever. You get either really like uh, expert tuned suspension or race slicks? Rennie. Uh, suspension. Kyle. Slicks. <laughs> <laughs> Kyle's like, dude, I'm going to manage all of this. I'm going to let the bike dance underneath me. All right. So you're done. You're done. You've won. You've podiumed. You've, uh, you've, you've definitely swung the champagne or sprayed a, a, a great girl with uh, some silly string. Um, your post-race meal, hot wings or pizza, Kyle? I would pick pizza with Ready? digestive enzymes. <laughs> in and out, burger. In and out, but, yeah. You say in and out? Yeah, for I was, sure. I was, I, I was really expecting Rennie to just go, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's got weed in it. All right, guys, best racetrack, Laguna Seca. Or Barber Motorsports Park, Rennie. Uh, it's a tough one, but I gotta go with Laguna, just for where it is, like how cool it is, but the challenge it is, 
I'd say Laguna, yeah. Uh, Kyle? Uh, I would only lean towards Barber right now just because the surface is so perfect and Laguna's due for a repave. Mm-hmm, there you go. I do yeah, love that. There might be a harder question. You guys are pretty on the ball on this, but who's the GOAT? Is it Rossi or Marquez? Kyle? Still Rossi. Uh, Rennie? Doesn't exist. You can't compare the greatest riders of all time because we haven't finished all time yet. Ah! Ah! It's a walkie like dancer. A journalist. I love it. <laughs> that's, a, that's a walkie dancer. I love it. <laughs> All right, so to end this out, guys, this one will take a little bit more thought on both ends. So you have the chance to do a lead follow with any rider from history on any track in the world. Who's the rider and what track is it? Uh, Kyle. Nick, yeah, Laguna. Yeah, that wasn't a hard question. <laughs> Ready? Uh, I've got to say Steve Hislop at the Man. All right, gents, uh, that does it for this episode of the Reserve Tank presented by Progressive. I want to thank you both for joining us. Uh, it's you know good uh, good time on a Friday morning. Uh, everybody, remember, don't forget the Progressive IMS Outdoors Tour is kicking off this July. We'll be featuring new attractions this year, including demos for off-road and street. You can demo ride e-bikes, scooters, check out stunt shows. There'll be music, food trucks, camping in select markets. Go to MotorcycleShows.com for more. Be sure to check out continuetheride.com for all the things that the Progressive IMS Outdoors series is putting together. I've got new episodes of IMS Rides, uh, which is a fun video that kind of showcases and highlights riders from all different kinds of parts of the world and also some educational fun stuff uh, that yours truly is the host of. We've got an industry podcast that really focuses on the business of motorcycling uh, with our host, Robert Pandia. It's called Center Stand, a motorcycle industry podcast. Beyond that, check us out. Follow us on social media. I don't have any sponsors to plug at this point, uh, other than a big thanks to Progressive for continuing to sponsor and host this episode and our series. Uh, thank you, gents, for joining us. And to everybody that's listening, remember, ride smart, ride safe, and we'll see you out there on the road. Mm-hmm.